half of Leviticus, or the first 17 chapters at least, deal with uh, the issues of sacrifice and how the nation of Israel were to sacrifice uh, things to God. And he gives very, very specific instructions. And um, we live in a day where a lot of people, uh, either either without saying it and by their, by their actions, or sometimes even they'll come out and say this, they'll say that, well, it really doesn't matter how we do it as long as we do it. And when it comes to our worship, when it comes to our praying, when it comes to living for the Lord, and uh, even in our churches, there are things that, uh, methods that oftentimes are adopted and brought into uh, our areas of worship and our time spent with God. And uh, we seem to minimize the importance of uh, the methods that God certainly gave to the nation of Israel. We understand that not everything in the Old Testament is applicable to today, but we do see the, the heart of God. We see that He is concerned about not just that we do certain things, but even how we go about doing them. Um, so methods do matter. In the day that we live, people believe that uh, the methods that are employed and used for public worship uh, don't have any morality to them. Uh, the truth of the matter is they do. And whenever we incorporate things that are from a worldly influence into our uh, holy worship that we have for a holy God, uh, we begin to uh, follow after some, some things that the Bible says the Lord hates. Uh, the, the, in Revelation chapter number 2, it talks about some churches that tolerated, and then one church that did not tolerate, the deeds of the Nicolaitans. And the Nicolaitans were ones that thought that way. They thought we could mix everything and uh, to bring the things in from the world and from pagan worship and uh, things from society that were accepted at that day and bring them into the church. And uh, God said, uh, you've, you've tolerated the deeds of the Nicolaitans, and I hate those deeds. He, he said, I, I don't like those things. And so we learn the heart of God. And so a lot of the uh, Old Testament law that we find in Leviticus, uh, he's going to talk to them even about dietary things. And uh, some of the dietary things we don't follow today. Um, there are more sanitary ways of <coughs> processing that meat and keeping that meat. And um, so we don't always follow the... Uh, the letter of the Old Testament law, because some of that was given for that time period and for those people. Uh, but we do see God's heart and detailed uh, mindset on how they were to, to make themselves distinct. And a lot of the laws that God gives to the nation of Israel uh, were practical laws. They were things that helped them with their health and their diet. But some of them were, sacra were uh, 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 ceremonial uh, things that were to be, to be done. And the reason for that was God wanted a distinction between His people and uh, the, the people of the world. And uh, by the way, we live in a day where we claim the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. If we say we've been saved, we call ourselves Christians, there ought be a distinction between that. When God created Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, the Bible says male and female created He them. In, the, in His image, He created each of them. And uh, he created the male to be 100% male, by the way, and the, and the female to be 100% female, by the way. And the issues of, of standards with regards to men and women, oftentimes we deal with things of dress and, and uh, uh, length of hair and different things like this. Um, there are issues in, in Scripture that deal with the issue of modesty. 
But um, I will say this, that the primary, and this is one that we don't teach very often, the primary issue in the Bible is not dealing so much with the modesty issue as it is with the distinction of the genders. That there be a separation. And we live in a day where our world is trying to blur them, aren't they? And if there's ever a day that there needs to be a distinction between men and women, uh, it is the day that we live in. And uh, the Bible teaches over and over again that there is to be a distinction there because God separated the man to be man and the woman to be woman. And if we try to be like the other in any way, shape, or form, then we are not fulfilling the image that God created us in. And so we've got to be so careful of those things in the area of our dress, in the area of our appearances, in the area of our speech, in the area of our actions. Uh, all of these things ought to be considered when it comes to this. And I bring that point out to say this, that God always, when He has something very specific to be done, always makes a point of separation. And so some of the things you'll find in Leviticus are very practical. They're very, uh, they deal with the physical world. They deal with uh, their dietary issues, their cleanliness issues, um, to try to keep diseases from spreading in the midst. And so some of them are very practical, but some of them are ceremonial and for no other reason than to provide a distinction between the people of God and those that were not the people of God. And, uh, by the way, those, those things still, even though we not, we're not held to the same Old Testament law standards, there are still standards that are given in the New Testament of Scripture that you and I are to be distinct in. You and I are to be separated in. And uh, those things are not, by the way, God told us this. Uh, when we love Him as we ought to, those things are not grievous to us. We don't look at them and say, boy, I can't believe i got to do that. We look at them and say, well, if that's what my Savior wants and that's what makes Him happy, then I'm glad to do it. It's not grievous to me. It's not hard for me to do that. It's not difficult for me to make that decision. And uh, so the Bible teaches that. So the book of Leviticus is, is a very, very pointed uh, set of instructions, very detailed. And so we talked a little bit about this. The first half of the first 17 chapters deal with their methodology of, of sacrifices, what the sacrifices are to be. And then uh, he deals with the last half of the book, uh, chapters 18 through 27. He deals with their sanctification. This is their setting apart. Uh, so what makes them different? Uh, their cleanliness, their holy living. And by the way, there is nothing at all ever wrong with living uh, holy, a holy life. Um, if we err to the side of anything, we ought to err towards holiness. Uh, say, well, Brother Greg, I don't know if God expects me to be that holy. I promise you, you, you try to be as holy as you can, as righteous as you can, and you're living. God's not ever going to get upset at you about that. But if we go the other direction, we say we're going to get as close to sin as we can and have the least amount of holiness that's required by Scripture, there's going to be some disappointment there because the heart is not doing what it should be doing. And uh, so uh, we need to understand some of these things. So that's kind of where we dealt with last week, some of the things we dealt with. We gave you some key verses, some key chapters. And uh, I want to go into, uh, in, in the book of Exodus, we begin to see some of the uh, feasts. There are seven major feasts that are given to the nation of Israel. There are a few others that are given, um, but they all kind of apply to these main seven. And... Um, You'll find that uh, they start in the book of Exodus giving these, but in Leviticus, God gives them and is very, very uh, thorough. He's very detailed on that. And the chapter you'll find that in is in Leviticus chapter number 23. Leviticus chapter 23. 
it's interesting because as we go through these, and we're going to spend a little bit of time on them today in Sunday school, uh, as we go through these, you'll find that these feasts, uh, oftentimes people call them the Feast of Israel, but the truth is they're really the feasts that symbolize the, the history of time and the, and the future events that are coming. And you'll see as we get into these, and we brushed over them uh, rather uh, lightly, just gave a high-level overview uh, I think two weeks ago or three weeks ago, and kind of gave you some uh, just a, a, an inkling of their representation, what they <coughs> what they do to picture the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, while they are seven feasts that were given to Israel, they picture uh, the work of Christ in this world and His uh, interaction with men. And so, we're going to take a quick look at this as we're in Leviticus chapter number twenty-three. We'll start verse number 1. <clears throat> Excuse me. The Bible says, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, uh, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, Concerning the feast of the Lord, which ye shall proclaim, notice this, to be holy convocations. Even these are my feasts. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of rest, and holy convocation, ye shall do no work therein. It is the Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings. And so he takes the known law of the seventh-day Sabbath and the day of rest and saying this is a, a consecrated day, this is a holy day. And he says the way that you observe that is the way you are to observe these feasts. They are, they are sacred, they are holy. Um, they are known by the nation of Israel as holy days and days of rest. By the way, isn't it interesting that we get our word holiday from these holy days. That's where it originated. Uh, the idea that we have a day of rest, a day of uh, coming apart from the, what we do, our, our day-to-day grind, our work. And uh, it's interesting that uh, some people say, well, where did holidays come from? Well, they came from God originally. He's the one that set these things up. And uh, we don't observe, of course, all the times in our holidays we don't observe the things that God set up, but that's where holidays got their start or their origin was from these, these holy days that were to be days of rest. They were to be days of celebration. They were to be days of recognition and setting them aside for God. And as we get to verse number uh, 4, uh, we see the first one. Verse number 4 says, These are the feasts of the Lord, even holy convocations which ye shall proclaim in their seasons. In the fourteenth day of the first month at even is the, uh, the Lord's Passover. Now, there was no need for God to give a whole lot of detail on this to the nation of Israel because at this point they had already been observing uh, the Passover one year earlier, a little bit over a year earlier, uh, as they came out of Egypt. And they knew very clearly the very, very specific uh, instructions that were given. The Feast of the Passover required the blood of the Lamb and it's interesting that the Passover, and we refer to Christ as our Passover lamb, uh, the Passover required the blood of the lamb uh, to be applied in order for there to be a deliverer, deliverance from slavery. And while God delivered the nation of Israel from Egypt and Egypt's slavery, today the blood of Jesus Christ delivers us from the slavery of sin and that sin does not reign in our mortal bodies anymore doesn't mean that the old nature is not there. It just means it doesn't hold its, its holdovers like it used to. The bondage is broken there. 
And now we have a choice. Now we choose to sin or not sin. And uh, something that we, we lean into uh, oftentimes as Christians more often than we ought. Uh, and we, uh, we tend to, to go to that old nature. But it's not because we're under its bondage anymore. We've been delivered from that. We have a way of escape. And if we choose, we can uh, escape those things. Uh, and it's always left up to us and our choice. Just as the house in the nation of Israel, the lentils of the doorposts, the three doorposts, uh, had to be uh, uh, scribed with the blood. The Bible says that the, land, the, the angel that would come through uh, that was uh, going to kill the firstborn in every household, that when he saw the blood, the Bible says, I'll pass over you. And that's where they get the word Passover. You say, well, where's, where's this word come from? Well, it's from the idea that the angel of the Lord, when he saw the blood on the, on the post of the house, that he, when the blood was applied to the house, that uh, he would pass over him. And uh, I thought that was rather significant because the truth is uh, we live in this old flesh. And it's, not, it's our home for a temporary home right now. It's not, thank God it's not going to be our, our eternal home. But right now this is what we dwell in. It's our tabernacle. It's our house. And uh, the, the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ needs to be applied to each and every one of us. And when he sees the blood... The Bible says He'll pass over us, and we don't have the judgment for that sin. And, oh, aren't we so grateful for that? I'll tell you, if I, 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 my dad years ago uh, was talking to a fella, and the fella said, uh, with regards to a, a funeral service we were having, uh, the fella told my dad, said, well, he's gone on to his just reward. <laughs> and my dad very graciously, very kindly said, uh, Brother, I'm thankful that he didn't go to his just reward. If he had had his just reward, he would have been in hell but he's trusted Christ as his Savior. He's able to share the gospel with that fellow. And I'm thankful we don't have to go to our just reward. We don't have to go to that which we have earned and that we have deserved. But we get, we get grace and we get the mercy of God, which is certainly not merited and it certainly is not deserved. And we get to verse number 6. We find the second feast. We find it says, On the fifteenth day of the same month is the feast of unleavened bread unto the Lord. Seven days... You must eat unleavened bread. In the first day you shall have an holy convocation. You shall do no servile work therein, but you shall offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord seven days. In the seventh day is a holy convocation. Ye shall do no servile work therein. And uh, we find that fire is always a burnt uh, anything, is always a, uh, a picture of judgment or cleansing, purifying, if you will. And you'll find that throughout Scripture, uh, that uh, it has a cleansing effect. In fact, the Bible teaches us in the New Testament that uh, there are going to be uh, works that we do. They're going to be tried by fire, and some's going to burn as wood, hay, and stubble, and others are going to come forth as shining gold. And I think it was in the book of Job, it says, When I am tried, I shall come forth as gold. And he's speaking of the trying in a refiner's fire and the idea of uh, going through that judgment and the purifying effect that it has. And uh, so the idea of unleavened bread is a bread that was baked without yeast or without leaven. Uh, the Bible talks about uh, leaven throughout Scripture, and leaven most always, typically, uh, is is the idea of sin in a person's life. And so we find that um, the Bible says here that on the morrow after the Sabbath, I'm sorry, uh, on, on the seven days after the feast of unleavened of the Passover, the feast of unleavened bread takes place. And uh, this feast, we see pictured the holy and sinless life of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was without sin. 
Um, there are several things that I think are very unique about this. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Uh, the, Beth, the Bethlehem that he was born in was known as the house of bread. Isn't that interesting? He was described in Scripture as the bread of life. He broke the bread at the Last Supper as a picture of his broken body. He said, take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. And uh, he's pictured as the bread. And the fact that the Israelites were to observe a, a feast of bread, but not just any bread, it had to be unleavened bread, pictures the sinlessness and the holiness of a life that the Lord Jesus Christ came and lived on this earth. By the way, it was important that he be sinless or he could not be the substitutionary sacrifice for us. He had to be perfect. He had to be without spot and without blemish. And so uh, we find that the uh, Feast of Unleavened Bread was to picture uh, the, the sinless life of a lamb that was to come one of these days, and from the way they were looking at it, uh, it was in, yet to happen at Calvary, uh, the sinless lamb that was to come and have a purifying effect. There's some interesting things about this bread. Uh, oftentimes they would make it as what was called a striped bread. I can't pronounce the name of it. Some of you may know what it is. But it was a striped bread. And there was some things that were symbolic about it uh, being a striped bread in that uh, the Bible speaks about the fact that by His stripes we are healed. And then there, there was a significance in the taking of the bread where they would pierce the bread, and it was a symbolic uh, sign of the pierced body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then, of course, the fact that it did not have leaven uh, signified the purity and the sinlessness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we find the Feast of Unleavened Bread just a wonderful picture uh, of Christ Himself. Then we come down to verse number 9. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, uh, When ye come into the land which I give unto you, and shall reap the harvest thereof, then ye shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest unto the priest. And he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted for you. On the morrow after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And ye shall offer that day when ye wave the sheaf and a he lamb without blemish of the first year for a burnt offering unto the Lord. And the meat offering thereof shall be two-tenths uh, two -tenth deals of fine flour mingled with oil and an offering made by fire unto the Lord for a sweet savor. And the drink offering thereof shall be of wine and the fourth part on, uh, uh, on him. And he shall eat neither bread uh, nor parched corn nor green ears unto the selfsame day that ye have brought an offering unto your Lord, it shall be a statute forever throughout your generations <coughs> in all your dwellings. I spent a few minutes on this a few weeks ago <coughs> dealing with the three um, time frames of the harvest, when the, right, when the harvest would first begin to ripen. The owners would go out or send their servants out to do what was called uh, a first fruits harvest. They would go out and get the things that were just beginning to ripen. They did that for two reasons. One is they were commanded by God to do that and to offer those first fruits to God. They were to be His. Uh, the second reason they would often do that is it also gave them an idea of what the harvest was going to be like. They could see the quality of the harvest, the abundance of the harvest, whether or not it was going to be significant or uh, 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 abundant enough for their needs. And uh, then uh, as the, the harvest continued to ripen, they would have what was called the main harvest, and that's where they would come through and basically uh, harvest the rest of the crops, uh, whatever crop it was. And oftentimes the Bible uses reference to wheat 
uh, being one of the big harvests that they did. And so they go out and they would harvest the wheat. And then there was something that God had also put instructions on the nation of Israel on, and that was that uh, those that were uh, the, the, the wheat that was dropped or the fruit that was dropped oftentimes by the workers was not to be picked up. Um, and in fact, they would even sometimes mark off sections of their crops and they would even leave a portion of their crop. Uh, and those were called the gleanings. Those were for the poor people to come to the fields later and to be able to, to get fruit that was left over from the harvest, go through the fields and find those things and use them for their food. And so you had three parts of the harvest. You had the first fruits, you had the main harvest, and then you had the gleanings. And there were three distinct uh, uh, periods of time of the main harvest. If you have your Bibles handy, hold your place here in Leviticus 23 because we're going to be right back to them. But I want us to turn, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter number 15 in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul uh, refers to this. 1 Corinthians chapter number 15. And uh, let's look in verse number 20. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse number 20. Paul writes this. He says, But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. Okay, the idea here that there were Old Testament saints that had died a physical death. It doesn't use the word died here because they were still alive. They just weren't alive in their physical form. Uh, so they were being healed until the time of Christ's uh, crucifixion where they could uh, go to heaven at that point. And uh, so we find in verse number 20, Now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ, the firstfruits. Now notice this. Afterward, they that are Christ's at His coming. Then cometh the end when He shall have delivered up the kingdom of God, even the Father, when He shall have put down all rule and authority and power. So we find three distinct areas here. We find Christ resurrecting the first fruits. Then we find when He comes back at the rapture, uh, those that are Christ at His coming. And then it says in verse 24, and then cometh the end. And so there's going to be those that will be saved during that millennial reign, some that will be saved during the tribulation period, and those will be what we would refer to as the gleanings uh, after the main harvest. And so Paul understood this truth. He wrote of this truth. Look with me in the book of Matthew, chapter number 27. Matthew, chapter 27. And once again, we're going to see here, Matthew chapter 27, and let's look in verse number 51. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rocks rent, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which which slept arose and came out of the graves after His resurrection and went into the holy city, and notice this, and appeared unto many. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us a whole lot of what happened to these Old Testament saints that rose from the dead when Christ rose, but they were part of that first fruits harvest. Uh, the Bible teaches us that Christ, when He came back out of the grave, it, it uses this phrase, it says that He led captivity captive. 
meaning those Old Testament saints that were waiting for the cross to, to happen and the blood to be applied to the mercy seat in heaven, had been waiting in a place, the Bible refers to it as paradise, and uh, then when Christ died on the cross, the, the use of paradise was no longer needed. And so it is no longer uh, being used for that purpose. Now the Bible says, and Paul wrote this, now on this side of Calvary to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So we go straight to the Lord at this point, and we don't uh, have to go to this place that the Old Testament saints did have to go to at that time. And uh, so we find here that uh, even in the book of Matthew, we find that these folks, these Old Testament saints, rose at the same time, some of them rose at the same time physically uh, that Christ did. That's interesting. There's not a whole lot said in Scripture about that because... Uh, And I think for a reason. I think Christ doesn't want us to focus on that because the important thing is Christ rose from the dead. And we can sit here and make a big deal out of these Old Testament saints uh, rising from the dead. But really the important thing is that Christ did. I think it would have been neat to live in that day. I don't know which Old Testament saints went into the holy city and were seen by many. But could you imagine Abraham showing up at the synagogue? Or Moses? uh, Or Adam? Uh, you know, it just would have been amazing to see some of those things. And again, we don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us which ones did or how many of them out of all that had died before. Uh, if it was all of them or if some of them went on up to heaven and some of them came and were walking on the earth for a little bit while. We don't know how they got to heaven from that point. The Bible doesn't tell us that. I have a, uh, an idea that, that since they rose from the dead like Christ did, that when Christ went to heaven that they went again uh, that were, that during that time period and went with them, but I can't show that uh, definitively from Scripture. I would just assume that since there is that connection uh, with the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, that they would have also been connected with His ascension to heaven. And um, So anyway, that's interesting to see that, but God even refers to those folks as the first fruits. And so again, we see how the first fruits offering represents the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, in Hebrews chapter number 1, and I'll, I have these notes printed out, and after Sunday school I'll set them on the back table there, and you can have these notes after the service. So if you're trying to write all this down and you miss something, that's fine, because uh, I do have them typed for you. But at, uh, in Hebrews chapter 1, uh, Jesus is known as the first begotten of the Father. In Colossians chapter number 1, verse number 15 and 16, He's known as the firstborn of creation. In Revelation chapter number 1, in verse number 5, he's known as the first begotten of the dead. And then, of course, in 1 Corinthians 15, we've already seen, he's known as the first fruits of those that were to be resurrected. And so Christ is the first. When I mean, the Bible says he's the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, he is, he is certainly uh, the head of all things. And uh, what a wonderful picture there is in the book of Leviticus, chapter number 23. And uh, I'll tell you what, I've got... Four more of these to go in about four minutes, and we're just not going to because some of them are even further in detail than these. So what I'd like to do here is probably let's go ahead and end there, and then next week we'll deal with the next four, and uh, I'll have these notes back on the back table for you there. So let's go ahead and dismiss in prayer, and then we'll pick up there next week. Father, we're so thankful for your word. Lord, how perfect this book is. And while we understand that you were giving instructions to the nation of Israel about seven literal feasts, things that they were to observe, we also understand that there are wonderful pictures of your ministry, your working in this world. A picture really of all of time.
from the beginning of the time of man till the end when you come again in your second coming and your eternal reign. Lord, we see these so vividly, so easily pictured and illustrated in these feasts. And oftentimes we understand and we read from Scripture that the Israelites were to observe these, but how wonderful they are to our hearts, how encouraging, how, how much joyfully we look at these feasts and see the wonderful pictures of your ministry, your work in this world from the beginning of time till the end. We pray that you'll bless the study that we do, that you'll help guide and direct us in them. And then, Lord, I pray that you'll bless the services to follow. May you do a work in our hearts. Guide us and direct us, we pray. And, uh, Father, I pray that you would be honored and glorified in everything that we do here. May we not be a reproach. May we not be a hindrance to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.